Welcome to Alabama AgCast, a weekly conversation about news and issues affecting Alabama farmers and forest landowners. Alabama AgCast is produced by the Alabama Farmers Federation. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Alabama AgCast. This is Brian Harden, Director of Governmental and Agricultural Programs for the Alabama Farmers Federation. And today I am truly super excited that we've got uh, a special guest with us, uh, Daniel Whitley. Uh, Danny is the Acting Administrator for USDA's Foreign Ag Service, where he's based in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Danny. Hey, Brian, how's it going? Thank you so much for having me. I got to say this, uh, even as we get started, I think the last conversation and the last trip that I participated in before COVID was with Alabama. So uh, you guys have come become my second home and uh, appreciate all of the uh, the courtesy and, and, and interest you've shown in FAS and all that we offer. Really, really appreciate it. Well, we're honored, Danny, and, and we mean that, and it has developed into a great relationship. I'm going to give Danny an opportunity to, to tell a little bit of, about yourself, and then um, I'm going to share a little bit um, about our perspective from Alabama, too, about Daniel Whitley that I think gives us some great context. So, Danny, tell us about where you're from, about school, and a little bit about your family. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, glad to do that. Uh, I'm from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, home of the LSU Tigers, and uh, I was born and raised in Baton Rouge, and I went to uh, Southern University for uh, my bachelor's degree and uh, received my bachelor's in ag economics. And I went to LSU for my master's degree and got a master's at LSU in ag economics. And along the way, I was one of these kids that was really lucky and fortunate to land two internships with USDA while I was in college. Uh, my first was with the Farmers Home Administration in Winsboro, Louisiana, a real small town in North Louisiana. And my second internship was with the Economic Research Service uh, up in Washington, D.C. And that was my first foray, really uh, getting an opportunity to work in international trade, work on international trade issues in the WTO. So from, from that point on, I was hooked. I was hooked on trade, really wanted to work in that area. Uh, when I finished graduate school, they brought me on for a, uh, a permanent uh, position with Economic Research Service. And I'll never forget this as long as I live. My first overseas trip, Brian, I think I went to, uh, we went to Rome and my luggage was lost. And I had to live in Rome for four days with the clothes that uh, that I kind of wore. I had to figure out how to, you know, manage four days without my luggage, but it didn't deter me. I still like trade, still wanted to work on the issues. And I think I've visited maybe 30 countries since then, but I'll never forget that first trip uh, to the UN uh, Food and Ag Organization over in Rome and uh, really licked my chops on trade. From that point on, we started, um, I, I then switched over and started working for the Foreign Agricultural Service. And I was immediately assigned to working on WTO issues in, uh, in Geneva and started working on the, what they call then the Doha Development Round. And I was, I was this market access analyst, Brian. I thought I knew a lot, but didn't know anything. But I was eager and I was learning, had some great teachers, uh, folks that I learned from in, in the agency and really became a you know, pretty good analyst, I think, uh, in dealing with supply and demand fundamentals and markets and tariffs and all of that. And uh, eventually just stuck with it, stuck with it. And over time, just moved up into leadership and management. So now I get to talk about a lot of the work that, that I see 
uh, our really talented people in the agency do on a day-to-day basis. But love what I do and love having the opportunity to represent rural America and agriculture all over the globe. Well, Danny, I would say that I'd feel sorry for you that you got stuck in, in Rome for four days, but there's probably worse places to, to get stuck as a, as a young man starting a career. So, uh, but what I hope the listener will, will hear and understand, um, you know, we are, um, really fortunate to have some time with Danny today because of his experience and, and where he's at right now within the foreign agricultural service and, and his position. A couple of years ago is really kind of where our relationship started um, with with Danny. Uh, Mitt Walker, our national uh, affairs uh, program uh, director, had coordinated our fly-in to D.C. And so we had several speakers at USDA, and, and Daniel was one of those that day who just did an outstanding job. And, and again, we, we twisted his arm to, to get him in the state, and he did a great job speaking to the row crop short course uh, last week and our last, uh, last couple of years with, uh, with extension and um, just – just does a great job. So we're, we're fortunate the relationship's continuing. As we get started, because I always think of this, I, you know, I think the Foreign Agricultural Service, Danny, is one of those agencies that maybe is flies under the radar a little bit as far as what it does. I mean, we think about FSA and we think about NRCS probably more on a day-to-day uh, basis with our farmers. Tell us a little bit more about what is the Foreign Agricultural Service. Yeah, no, happy to do that, Brian. Um, So the Foreign Agricultural Service, we are a trade agency, and our mission is very simple. Now, some of the work we do is quite complex, but the mission is simple, and that is this, to increase U.S. agricultural exports. That's it. That's our goal. That's what we aim to do. Now, I like to think of our work to achieve that under three pillars, the first pillar being trade policy, the second pillar being trade marketing and promotion, and the third pillar being trade capacity building and development. And I'll give you a really quick example of each of those three pillars. Under trade policy, just think about negotiations. So when we negotiated USMCA or the current UK and FTA free trade agreements, we are the subject matter experts in the room at the negotiating table representing agriculture alongside our good friends over at USTR. We also have a rapid response mechanism where we resolve issues at the port uh, when they arise. Third, we represent all of ag's interest in IOs. Think the WTO, think the World Health Organization. We're there to protect the way we produce products and to make sure that trade is free and fair and balanced. So that's trade policy. Second pillar, trade marketing promotion. What I like to tell people is this, Agriculture is no different than any other business sector out there, no different than the sneaker business, no different than the uh, the car business, no different than the computer business. Just like they market and promote those products, we have to do the same thing with agriculture. And we have a number of programs that we own and operate annually around the world where we promote U.S. ag products from basically uh, food taste and, and representation shows to uh, trade shows to uh, trade missions. I think we've invited uh, some folks from Alabama in the past on to some of our trade missions where we link our sellers up to buyers in those countries. So these are some of the trade promotion and marketing opportunities that is so vital to everything we achieve. And then the third pillar is trade capacity building and development. And the way I like to describe this one is that not every trading partner is mature enough to start buying U.S. ag products right now. 
So what we do is identify select countries where we think it's important to go in, talk about the regulatory environment, talk about the science environment. We like to educate and inform. In many instances, Brian, we've already done a lot of the research. We've already done a lot of the analysis. There's really no need for them to have to invest and spend all of that time to, to do that same research. So we're happy to share what we know, what we think the science is, and we call that uh, technical assistance. And we work with a lot of developing and uh, even some low-income countries to, to, to raise their awareness and raise their uh, economic level. Last but not least, all of this is underpinned by our market intelligence. We have an amazing group of analysts and economists that uh, gather supply and demand information from all around the world uh, through our foreign service network, uh, which is another piece that I'll, I'll hit in just a second. But we take that information and we make it available to groups like the Foreign Bureau. We make it available to academia. We make that information available to agribusinesses who need to know the market intelligence and the supply and demand fundamentals of agriculture. And as our name suggests, we are a foreign service agency. We do have a foreign service diplomatic corps, roughly 100 to 150 foreign service officers serving all around the world at any given time. And I like to think of it like this. They're your eyes, your ears, and your voices overseas. Our first line of defense when a problem arises, but they're very offensive in nature in trying to create open markets. So that's kind of FAS in a nutshell. But the thing I want the listeners to, to walk away with is we're a trade agency that increases and expands U.S. agricultural exports. That's outstanding, Danny. I think it really does uh, show us how much that the Foreign Agricultural Service is involved in. Um, you know, when we think about trade, China is top of mind this past year. If you will, you know, talk a little bit about the progress that's been made with China. Um, what are we looking at maybe going forward with China and just kind of catch us up there? Yeah, no, that is certainly a, a topic that uh, is at the top of everybody's uh, mind with respect to the administration coming in, with respect to assessing the phase one agreement. And I'll just share with you a bit of the numbers. So as you're aware, Brian, the this was a unique negotiation, none that I've never been a part of had ever witnessed before, uh, in that uh, the trading partner had committed to making a specific purchase amount. And I think $33.4 billion uh, was the purchase commitment uh, China made in the China phase one agreement. We got the full year 2020 calendar uh, exports in last week and they came in at 27.2 billion. So clearly that's short of the target. However, if you compare it to uh, previous years and previous records, it would it is a new record, barely, but it is a new record for exports to China. So we'll just have to see how this is interpreted and what sort of the next phase will be. Obviously, China uh, is certainly a, a, a vital market for American agriculture. It was a, a pretty good customer last year, but there are some areas where there's a lot of room for improvement. So I'll just go over with you real quick some of the uh, commodities that did well last year and some of the commodities that didn't do as well. Obviously, we had a number of record exports for pork and corn. They led the way, new highs with exports to China uh, as a result of uh, African swine fever sort of being more in the rearview mirror, the herd popula the hog herd population sort of growing back to, to size, a lot of that feed demand needed for that animal population sort of spurred much of that uh, growth in feed grains. 
Then on the animal protein side, again, a lot of that meat, uh, domestic meat was not available for production uh, as they get there, as they ramp up their animal production capabilities. So we were able to get a lot of pork as well as a lot of beef, as well as a lot of poultry into uh, China last year. The meat complex did amazingly well. So we're very, very bullish, very excited with the performance of those areas. Some areas where we weren't as excited, uh, we didn't see the gains in ethanol that we thought uh, might come through. We didn't see the gains in DDGs, distiller dried grains that might come through, but uh, it's a mixed bag. So there's really an, an effort that, that, that will be made to determine how we evaluate this overall agreement. The other part of the agreement that uh, I think surprised a lot of folks was we really wanted to kind of go in and address the regulatory environment. There were about 57 technical, what we call technical fixes that China needed to make, whether it was on poultry, whether it was the rice protocols, whether it was biotech approvals, uh, whether it's getting uh, uh, poultry and, and, and other meat into pet food, what have you. There were 57 technical fixes that we asked. Well, China fixed 50 of them. So there's seven remaining. And we've, we've, we've heard that China's interested in getting back to the table and looking at some of those biotech events and some of those biotech issues. Very excited, but we really need to get those seven fixes done and behind us and really open up that market. Big market, 1.7 billion people, I think, now in China, and it is vital to American agriculture. So we're waiting on uh, more leadership to arrive at USDA, and we'll get more guidance out of the administration. But uh, it's the number one market in 2020, and it is projected to be a top market in 2021 as well. Well, I know farmers across the country are going to be watching that going forward. And on the other side of a break, Danny, I want us to talk a little bit about some more market opportunities, but we're going to take a quick pause for a word from our sponsor. Outstanding. It's never a dull day on the farm, especially when your day starts before the sun comes up. We're Alabama Ag Credit. And while some don't get it, we do. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, we've helped farmers finance everything from homes and land to tractors and crops. Because sometimes your natural resources need financial resources. Hey, everybody. We're back with uh, Mr. Daniel Whitley, who is the acting administrator for the United States Department of Agriculture's Foreign Agricultural Service. And we were discussing uh, the the progress with China and still the opportunities ahead. Danny, if you will, talk a little bit more about what are a few other markets, a few other countries that you see as the real emerging opportunities for U.S. agriculture? Definitely. So China's number one, and right there with China, of course, is Canada and Mexico. Obviously, we renegotiated our, our agreement with them, USMCA, I think everybody's aware, and they serve as our top three markets, all above $20 billion annual each year. So those have been consistent markets for American agriculture, and I think they will, they will continue to be consistent markets for us. But when we move into that next tier, I'm excited about a couple of, couple of regions, actually. The first region I'm very excited about is Southeast Asia. When you think about Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Thailand, and you look at many of their macroeconomic factors, their growth trends from low income to middle class consumers, their taste and preferences becoming more westernized, their uh, GDP growth, it bodes well for American agriculture. So uh, I'm excited about some of the analysis we have going on back at the department into looking into to those countries, those regions. Obviously, many of those countries are a part of TPP, 
which we are not a part of. So many of our competitors are getting access to those markets. So really, really interested in seeing what that can become for American agriculture. Another region I'm interested in is, Brian, is Africa. Obviously, we're currently negotiating a free trade agreement with Kenya, but I think that could just be the tip of the iceberg. Many of our competitors, Russia, Europe, China, they're already in the African uh, continent, and we're starting to, to increase our presence. But I think once we complete our negotiations with Kenya, there may be other opportunities that make sense. For example, the East Africa Customs Union. So I think a lot of research and analysis into, in, into looking into those regions, seeing what those opportunities are. The USDA baseline is coming out next week. It's our 10-year projections for farm income, macroeconomics, prices, trade, all of those, all of those components of agriculture. And one of the pieces that I'll be very, very interested in is the GDP growth projection for these regions that we're discussing. A lot of people don't realize this, but for many African countries, they have a very, very strong GDP growth projection. It's off of a smaller base, but the projections are strong. So one, really wanted to see if that's continued out as we get past COVID and we move into the next phase of, of negotiations. Outstanding. Danny, uh, I know a lot of factors play into when we talk about what are what are the trade opportunities, and, and we could talk about a lot of things as far as artificial barriers and other factors. I guess what I would like to transition, and you help give the listener per, some perspective on, obviously, um, you're in the executive branch through USDA, and then Congress passes laws, and that can impact what um, that executive branch does. We're, we're fortunate in Alabama that we have Congresswoman Terry Sewell, who serves on the House Ways and Means Committee, which oversees trade. Talk a little bit about how does that interaction take place? And as you as you monitor as USDA and FAS what Congress does, how does that impact what you're doing um, through through trade opportunities and through FAS on a daily basis? Right. No, Brian, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, your congresswoman serving on Ways and Means, that is a vital, vital position uh, and a vital committee for agriculture. They basically set the rules uh, and, and determine the laws with respect to trade. It's for all commodities, not just uh, not just agriculture, but it's really the authorizing body in Congress for trade uh, commodities. And what happens, Brian, one of the first things I think we need to pay attention to is uh, Trade Promotion Authority. This is the authority that gives Congress the uh, the ability to vote on a trade agreement up and down. I think it's expiring coming up, and it's almost extremely vital to have Trade Promotion Authority for the executive branch and the administration to be able to negotiate free trade agreements. The thinking behind that is this. Uh, if a country thinks that they will have to uh, negotiate an agreement with the United States that meets all the different interests of all the members of Congress, if they can amend it, that is less attractive to them wanting to negotiate with us. So having that ability to ensure an up and down vote really, really helps out uh, what we do and gives us a lot of momentum to move forward and negotiate trade agreements. This is something that the administration is well aware of uh, coming in. A lot of talented folks coming in with heel experience, ways and means experience, uh, so that's just a vital, vital committee that supports everything we do with with respect to trade negotiations. Well, we're we're excited and and very fortunate that that Congresswoman Sewell does serve there. And you know, from a, another perspective, a little bit more, I guess, from the grassroots, 
We're also excited that uh, that our president, Mr. Jimmy Parnell, has been appointed to the Agricultural Technical Advisory Committee for Animal and Animal Products, which is a mouthful. But I think, um, Danny, we're seeing, and because of a, a increased uh, relationship with people like you in the agency, it's opening doors for us to make sure that we're engaging our membership and our leadership of the Farmers Federation into some of these trade discussions and, and, and giving the secretary feedback. So tell us a little bit maybe about what Mr. Parnell will be able to uh, to be a part of there. Yeah, no, we're excited to welcome Mr. Uh, Parnell to the committee. And Brian, you know, we, you and I, we talked about this for about six months b b before, it, uh, before it actually happened. But basically, uh, these committees, the uh, Ag Policy Advisory Committees and the Ag Technical Advisory Committees are committees that advise the Secretary of Agriculture and the United States Trade Representative on trade. And they share these committees and really look to see what's happening with the industry from a private sector perspective and get that input as we should position ourselves on issues like what are upcoming markets, like where we should position ourselves on key regulatory issues or scientific issues. Uh, when we took a look at the, and I was, I was actually a bit surprised when we noticed, but when we looked at our representation and saw we didn't have any representation from Alabama, the secretary, you know, sort of, you know, previous secretary uh, charges with, hey, you know, he wanted broad geographic distribution uh, and representation on these committees. So we took that charge and I think I called you and said, hey, you know, we're very, very interested in having some folks from Alabama on these advisory committees. There's a gap. There's a, a missing piece there. And we were able to make it happen. Uh, very, very pleased with Mr. Purnell's credentials and all that he will bring to the committee. And um, I know. The incoming secretary will utilize these committees and want to get that input and feedback. So I just hope Mr. Purnell is extremely vocal and uh, communicates what he sees, what's happening out there and and how USDA and we can help Alabama's growers and producers and farmers. Outstanding. Danny, you've got so much good that I want to ask you, but we're going to we're going to leave it there for today. But thank you so much for what you're doing for for American farmers and, and Alabama farmers and, and just for agriculture as a country. It's so critical. And and I think we hear that today as we we speak with you. So thank you for for joining us today. No, thank you, Brian. Always very, very passionate talking about ag trade and export markets and what we do. Thank you for uh, your continued interest in our work at FAS and USDA as a whole. Thank you for what you're doing down there in Alabama in your own community, uh, in, in rural America, and, and helping uh, farmers and ranchers and processors continue to be prosperous and thrive. And whenever we can partner up and, and do good for agriculture in rural America, I hope I'm one of the first people you call. Outstanding. Thank you, Danny. And again, today our guest has been Mr. Daniel Whitley, uh, Acting Administrator for USDA's Foreign Agricultural Service. And this is Brian Harden. Thank you again for joining us today and look forward to you being with us next week for another edition of the Alabama AgCast. And now, your weekly AgCast wrap-up. This is William Green, Forestry Division Director for the Alabama Farmers Federation. For this week's wrap-up, I'm going to talk briefly about Alabama's forestry and forest product industries. I'd like to thank Dr. Adam Magger with Auburn University School of Forestry and Wildlife Sciences for these statistics and market outlook. Before talking about where the industry is heading, let's take a look at where we are currently. Alabama has over 23 million acres of timberland, ranking third nationally in overall acreage and second nationally 
for private timberland acreage. Of those 23 million acres, 88% is owned by non-industrial private landowners, mostly 75 acres or less. Alabama currently leads the nation in loblolly growing stock with 562 million tons. When looking at our standing timber, the majority will be sized as a saw timber class with 51% and 28% in the pulp size class. The remaining 21% will be classified as seedlings or saplings. Annually, Alabama's forestry and forest products industry generates $21.4 billion and supports 43,000 jobs. The state ranks second in pulp production and third in lumber production. Taking a look at industry recruitment, over $6.7 billion have been invested over the last decade with several new mills coming to the state and other mills spending millions on improving facilities. Now, many of you may be thinking, as good as all that sounds, stumpage prices don't seem to be lining up. Unfortunately, we're in an interesting position of a high demand with an extremely high supply. Stumpage prices are dependent on several factors, three of which being the housing market, supply of standing timber, and market competition. With low interest rates and shifting attitudes towards starter homes, the housing market looks to have another strong year. However, our surplus of standing timber and lack of mill-to-mill competition continues to be our largest hurdles. The timber industry is strong and likely to remain that way for years to come. Some emerging industries to keep an eye on in 2021 are mass timber construction and wood pellet exports. Alabama AgCast is sponsored by our friends at Alabama AgCredit. Give them a call for all your farm and land financing needs. For more information about today's conversation, check out the show notes or visit alphafarmers.org slash agcast. Be sure to follow Alabama Farmers Federation on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Tune in next week for another timely conversation from Alabama AgCast.